Welcome to the sermon podcast of Paley Presbyterian Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Becca Bruner. of you probably know there's an interdisciplinary study out there. Uh, it's called Geopolitics. Uh, and what it does in that study is it's looking at politics through the lens of geography. Uh, a classic case in point in, in the study of geopolitics is the relationship between uh, China and India, these two huge countries, densely populated, totally different from each other in every way, culturally, religiously, politically. They're right next door to each other, and yet through the thousands, millions of years that they have been living right next door to each other, they have uh, experienced relative peace. They haven't fought each other. Why is that? Well, what stands between them as a country is a huge, uh, the hugest uh, mountain range that there is in our entire world, the Himalayas. So it'd be really hard to fight a war across the Himalayas, so they say, hey, let's peace. Let's do that instead. That's geopolitics. In a similar sense, our spirituality can be shaped by geography. As we read scripture, all of us, we bring different lenses to it. You can read scripture through the lens of theology. You can read scripture through the lens of history. You can read it uh, through the lens of biography or poetry or prophecy or even science. There's all kinds of different ways you can look at scripture. You can also look at scripture through the lens of Geography. If there's geopolitics, we could say there's geospirituality. And so that's what we're going to do this summer. We're going to look at Scripture through the lens of geography. We're going to venture into the stories of Scripture, looking at the different peaks and valleys in the Bible. And through the stories that are told here in Scripture, we're going to hear some of our own stories told as well, because that's a really important thing to know about the Bible. The Bible is true, not just because stories happened oh so many years ago. The Bible isn't just true because those stories happened. The Bible is true because these stories happen. These stories that are told in Scripture are also our stories of the ways that God is at work, not just in their lives way back when, but in our lives here and now. And the reality is the life of faith is experienced on the peaks and in the valleys, on the highest mountaintops and through the deepest canyons. And we have mixed feelings about this, if we're really honest. We we love the mountaintops, right? We love those moments that represent the high points in our lives, those times when we feel God's presence closely and can see him working so clearly. We love that. We love the mountains. Valleys, not so much. The valleys, they represent those, those low points in our lives. In the, in the valleys, it can be very, very hard to feel God's presence. It can be hard to see God doing anything. But regardless of how we feel about them, the reality is that peaks and valleys are both part of life. And God is present and has a purpose in all of it. So this summer, we're going to travel through a number of those peaks and valleys, the ones in Scripture and the ones in our lives, 
And we are going to discover, I am confident, that no matter high, how high the high or how low the low, God is with us in all of it. And so we're going to start today with a pretty personal message for me. I've told you this before. It's a something I learned from, uh, it's actually the, the president of Princeton Seminary, Craig Barnes. I, he's a wonderful pastor, great preacher, and I went uh, to a seminar once. He, he was teaching on, on both, on pastoring and preaching, and it was just kind of a throwaway line. I don't think he even had it in his manuscript, but I've never forgotten it. He said, you know, the only sermon I ever have to preach is the one I need to hear. And so I, re I think about that, and I remember that even as I'm preparing a sermon. You know, if I get stuck, sometimes it's like, hey, God, what do I need to hear? Uh, but this, one's, this one is a personal one, and, and I'll tell you, being a little bit more personal, sharing a little bit more of my own story, it, it makes me a little nervous sometimes. So I'm going to ask uh, a couple things of you. And the first thing is, it comes to mind for me, it's something that's done in addiction recovery circles. When somebody, when anybody is going to get up in, a, in an addiction recovery setting, when somebody gets up to speak, they start in a certain way. They introduce themselves in one way, and the people who are there respond in a certain way as well. I'm going to see if you know what I'm talking about, and, the, and you can learn from each other. So uh, in that setting, I would and will get up and say, hi, I'm Becca, and I'm a sinner. And you would say, does anyone know? Welcome is good, but the, the response, I like it, but the response in addiction recovery circles is just, hi, Becca. That's it, so let's try that again. Hi, I'm Becca, and I'm a sinner. I feel better. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me. God, we thank you for your presence here in each and every one of our lives. We thank you for your presence in this moment and every moment. On those mountain peaks and in those dark valleys, you are there. So I pray personally uh, for your Holy Spirit to empower this message uh, that it's not about me, but it's about all of us and your love for us and your presence with us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today, as we heard the quartet sing so beautifully about, we're going to look at the life of Moses. And in Moses' life, it's interesting, God actually brings him to three different mountains. And as we look at Moses' mountains, I'm going to tell you about some of my mountains. And my hope and my prayer as we look at Moses' story and my story is that, that God will kind of lead you to some of those mountains in your own story as well. We're going to start in Exodus 3. And just to set the stage, you'll remember that uh, Moses, he was born an Israelite slave. He ended up being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in Pharaoh's household, and then as a young adult had to flee for his life after killing an Egyptian guard. And so now he spent 40 years of his adult life as a shepherd in the wilderness, and that's where we jump in. It says, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, come no closer, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. So Moses first meets God on Mount Horeb. And Mount Horeb, I would say, is the mountain of incapability. On this mountain, God shows us what we, or calls us to do what we cannot do to show what he can do. See, God called Moses to be God's spokesman, to go to to Pharaoh and say those famous words, let my people go, and Moses, he knows he can't do it. Well, it was 2003 for me. I had graduated college about a year and a half earlier, and I was working in youth ministry at a church just outside Seattle, Mercer Island, Presbyterian. And I was thinking about What was next? The pastor that I worked for there was encouraging me to go to seminary and prepare to become a pastor, but I wasn't so sure. See, I I really never liked school all that much, and I wasn't actually sure I wanted to be a pastor. You know, I knew I liked teaching teenagers. I, I knew I loved Jesus, but seminary, you know, being the big head honcho pastor, I don't know, that just didn't feel like me. I didn't think I could do it. But it's funny, even as I was kind of saying no in my mind, I still kind of left the door open this little crack. And I'm really even still to this day not sure why, uh, why I did this. I I was saying, no, I don't want to go to seminary, but I went and toured it anyway. Like I I flew from Seattle to New Jersey and went and did a tour at Princeton Seminary just just to see, just to see what it was I was really saying no to. And honestly, on that trip, my my feelings were confirmed. I went, I toured, I saw, and I didn't like it. I didn't want to go. It wasn't for me. I I couldn't do it, didn't want to do it. Well, skip ahead to the end of December that year. I led a team of college students to this, uh, this, um, I think it's annual or biannual missions conference. It's put on by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It's called Urbana. And they bring together, you know, like 20,000 college students from all around the world, really kind of encouraging them and inviting them to consider a life of mission and ministry. And so I I led this group of students to go, but really in my mind, I was like, I was looking for my thing. Like, what what is it that God is, is calling me to do next? Something other than seminary. Really anywhere other 
than seminary. And so I went to this conference, I attended these talks and these, these seminars, worship services, walked through, I mean, they had this whole gym devoted to this huge mission fair where hundreds or thousands of different mission organizations were there with their booths set up, you know, giving you the opportunity to find your call, find a place, their way to serve. And I walked through there and I just remember like, now, 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 like it was just so, there was nothing that grabbed me. My calling was nowhere to be found. And the people who were leading this conference, you know, their whole goal was to get people to say, yes, find your thing. God, here I am, send me. And I just found myself over and over just getting frustrated. Like, that's what I was wanting to say. Like, God, here I am, send me. And like, everything was like, no. And it was all building up to this one night of worship where they say, we we want you to make your commitment, you know, where you you sense what it is that God's calling you to do. We're going to have this time in worship where you can stand and say yes to God. And I was like, I don't know. And... I remember calling my mom and being really, really frustrated, just like trying to find where I want to go, and I, I couldn't do it. And I, you know, at her very wise encouragement, she just said, you know, I think you need to pray. Right? So I prayed. I was like, okay, God, I'm not seeing it. So I, I'm going to need you to show me. Where are you calling me to go? And it was in that worship service, that, that one where they're asking you to make that commitment. We're singing, we're praying, that, you know, the speaker was all leading towards this. And as we're singing, I will never forget it, just so clearly in my mind, as we sing, this picture comes to mind of the Princeton Seminary campus. Much to my dismay, I found my call to where it was that God wanted me to go. This was my mountain of incapability. Very clearly, God was calling me to what I could not do to show me what he could. So thinking about that, I just want you to think in your own life. Where has God called you to that mountain of incapability? Where have you experienced God calling you to do what you cannot so that perhaps God could show you what he can? We're going to jump back to Moses. So in fear and trembling, Moses goes to Pharaoh. He, he does the whole let my people go thing, and there's the plagues and the Passover, and then, then by God's hand, Moses leads the people safely across the Red Sea on dry ground. And then we come to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the mountain of the covenant, where God confirms his promise and conforms us to his plan. See, it wasn't for no reason that God saved the people of Israel from from slavery in Egypt. God had a purpose. He had made a promise to them, and he had a plan for them. We read about it in Exodus 19. It says, on the third new moon after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. God camped there in front of the mountain, or Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples, Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. Just a few chapters ahead is where Moses comes down from the mountain and gives the people the Ten Commandments. Mount Sinai is the mountain of the covenant where God confirms his promise and conforms us to his plan. So I got home from that missions conference and actually like within a week completed my application to Princeton Seminary and that following fall I enrolled as a student there. I knew God had called me there, but it didn't mean I liked it. All through the three years there, I, I actually referred to Princeton as my Nineveh. If you're familiar with the story of Jonah, uh, Jonah is the place, or Nineveh is the place that God called Jonah to go and he clearly didn't want to. That was seminary for me. Not that it was all that bad. I, you know, made great friends, had wonderful experiences, met and married my husband, you know, just to name a few good things. But to be honest, even after I graduated, even after I accepted my first call to ministry, seminary left me somewhat, I don't know, troubled. To, to call it a crisis of faith would be overblowing it, but that's close. See, I'd learned a lot at seminary, no question. I'd learned a lot about God, about church, about scripture, theology, worship, pastoral care, all, all that good stuff. I'd amassed a, a huge, impressive-sounding vocabulary, words like justification and sanctification and consubstantiation and other words that end with shun. And, you know, I could talk the talk. And I'd learned it, and I, I, I believed it, I guess. But what I couldn't put into words for myself and really for anybody else is why it all mattered. Right? I believed it. Sure, all that's true. What the heck difference does it make? And then, I think it was during my second year of ministry, uh, I got invited to attend this retreat. In that region, it was called the Great Banquet. In other regions of the country, it's called uh, Curcio or Walk to Emmaus. And I got invited to go and I'll be honest, I went with some skepticism. I mean, I grew up in church my whole life. I've been to every Jesus camp there is. What difference was this one gonna make? But I'll tell you what difference this one made. It answered my question. See, as I went through that weekend, and that weekend, every single piece of it is designed specifically to kind of overwhelm the participants with the unconditional love of God. And as I myself received that love, as I watched the people around me be changed by that love, I got it. I got it. This is why all that matters. This is why God had claimed me as his child, because he loved me. This is why God had called me into ministry, because he wanted me to share that love with others, this overwhelming, unconditional, unchanging love. This is why it matters. So for me, that was my mountain of the covenant. That's where God clearly confirmed for me his promise. And that was just one step of God conforming me to his plan. So again, the question I ask is, where's yours? Where has God confirmed his promise for you? And where is God conforming you to his plan? All right, one final time to Moses. 
So Moses did his very, very best to lead the people of Israel to the promised land, but they did not make it easy on him. You know, he, he brought them this covenant, God, God's word to them saying, hey, you all do your part, serve God, worship God alone, and you will be my people set apart, distinct and holy in order to be a light to all the other people. I'll be your God, you be my people, that's the deal. And the people of Israel were kind of essentially like, nah, nah, we're going to do some other things instead. And there were consequences for that, for the people of Israel and for Moses. Consequences which, as I read them to me, just don't seem all that fair. And all this takes place on Mount Nebo, the mountain of unanswered questions. And it's on that mountain that God proves that his presence is sufficient even in the struggle. You read about it in Deuteronomy 32. It says, on that very day, the Lord addressed Moses as follows. Ascend to this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites for a possession. You shall die there on that mountain that you ascend and be gathered to your kin because both of you broke faith with me among the Israelites at the waters of Meribeth Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin by failing to maintain my holiness among the Israelites. Although you may view the land from a distance, you shall not enter it, the land that I am giving to the Israelites. And jumping to chapter 34. It says, then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo. The Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. So as I said, this doesn't feel fair to me. Right? I'm left with a whole bunch of unanswered questions. I mean, the people rebel against God and Moses gets punished? Like, how is that okay? How is that right? What is, what's God doing here and, and why? And I don't know if Moses asked God all those questions, but I gotta think he did. The reality is the text doesn't tell us. What the text does tell us is that Moses is somehow at peace. Like Moses and God, they're good. All through the final chapters of Deuteronomy, even as Moses knows that he is not going to be allowed to go into the promised land, he's not gonna get what he wants. He doesn't argue, or he doesn't complain, he doesn't even ask why, he, he, he prays. He praises God and he, he, he blesses the people. So I gotta just think something happened. Something happened between Moses and God that, that though those questions were left unanswered, God or Moses knew that God's presence was sufficient in the struggle. So I feel like in some ways I'm standing on Mount Nebo right now. I'm on that mountain of unanswered questions. 
And my Mount Nebo is my family's journey through my dad's decline into dementia. There's a lot of unanswered questions around that. And it's a struggle. But even as I stand on this mountain now, I will tell you I do have a certain measure of peace because I've stood on this mountain before. And in that time before is when I really did learn that God's presence is sufficient in the struggle. It's going back again to my first year of seminary. My grandma, my mom's mom, passed away, and uh, my dad, for some reason, wasn't able to attend the service with my mom, so my sister and I went with her. It was back in her hometown of Roanoke, Virginia. And without going into a lot of details, just for the sake of time, I can tell you it was very, very hard. Uh, there's a lot of emotional unhealth in my mom's past, and so revisiting it for her mom's service nearly broke her. And I've seen her at that point before. We've shared before uh, how my mom struggles uh, with bipolar disorder, and she's had to have been hospitalized a couple times for it. I've seen her reach that point of needing that level of help, and she was close, like really close. Fortunately, we, we made it through that week, and everyone got home safe. We were safe, but not unscathed. We were all hurting a lot. And I remember sitting down to a morning quiet time and, and trying to pray, but I didn't really have words. And so I was like, well, I don't have anything to say. Let's see what God has to say. And I don't recommend this as a regular Bible study routine, but I just kind of did the thing where I just kind of flipped it open to see what there is. And I happened upon uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I read that, and for me, I'm a, I write when I pray. That keeps my mind focused. So I was writing in my journal and trying to pray the things I was supposed to pray, like, thank you, Jesus, for giving us rest. That's so great. And I was not. My heart wasn't in it. It really wasn't. I was trying to say the right words, the churchy words, and that's not what I was feeling. And this doesn't happen all the time, uh, and I can't prove that it was God, but it felt like in that moment I just heard God whisper, Tell me what you really feel. And so it did. For like three or four pages of angry scrawling in my journal, I let God have it. It's like, oh, come to me, you who are weary and laden. You'll, you'll give us what? I'm sorry, you'll give us rest? Is that so, God? Is that really real? Because my family, we've been coming to you. We've been serving you. We have been loving you and faithfully offering ourselves to you. And this is what you give us? Thanks, but no thanks. And I threw just tears like I don't think I could even see what I was writing. I poured it out, all my anger, all my hurt, all of those unanswered questions to God. And when I felt like I'd kind of gotten it all out, again, don't always recommend this method, I flipped the Bible, and came to Mark 8, 34. And it says, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And again, I it just kind of felt in that quiet, I heard God whisper, you know, you don't get to demand different treatment. 
Following me, even serving me, doesn't earn special rewards. That's not how it works. And while those words do sound a little harsh, like a rebuke almost, I can tell you all I felt was grace. All I felt was peace. The questions weren't all answered. But God's presence was sufficient in the struggle. God's presence was sufficient then, and God's presence is sufficient with my dad now. I still have questions. I still very, very much struggle, but I know that the God who has brought us through so much in the past is going to bring us through this now. So one last time I'll ask you, where and when have you stood on this mountain, this mountain of unanswered questions? I know some of you are standing there today. I know it may not feel like it right now. I know you'd much rather have those questions answered. You'd rather have the struggle solved, but sometimes we don't get that. So I just want to encourage you, with whatever you're feeling, whatever the questions, whatever the struggle, to turn to God with them. Trust yourself to God, even in the midst of the questions. And my hope and my prayer is that you will discover that God's presence is sufficient in the struggle. So let's do that as we turn to God in prayer together. You have created us for yourself, O oh God. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. God, we recognize before you the reality that you call us in the life of faith to follow you through peaks and valleys. We thank you for the gift of those mountaintop experiences where you make your presence and your love known to us in powerful ways. And reluctantly, we thank you as well for the valleys, for those dark spaces of unknown futures, of uncertain struggles, of questions. Lord, we thank you for that mountain of calling and pray that you would make, bring us to it again and again, or that you would call us to those spaces uh, where we are not sure that we can, where we feel insufficient, where we would experience your overwhelming sufficiency. We thank you for that mountain of the covenant that you make your plan and your purpose known to us. And we don't want to thank you for it, but we do, for that mountain of unanswered questions. And for the people who are standing there right now, Lord, I pray that your presence would overwhelm in such a way that we would have peace that passes understanding. Lord, 
Lord, we pray for those in our community who need your presence, especially right now. We pray for your healing hand to be upon Marsha Woodruff and keep bringing strength and health to her body. We pray for the family and the friends of our beloved friend, John Woodcock, as he has stepped into your invitation of eternal life. We thank you that for him, pain is past and suffering has ended. But we do pray for your comfort for those who will miss him very much. We pray for the many among us who have parents and loved ones who are hurting, whose health is failing. And pray that you would give strength to the caregivers and peace to those who, uh, who hurt watching those who, whom they love hurt. We pray for our brothers and our sisters in the community of Downingtown who have gone through so much in this past year, having lost so many students and even uh, teachers who have died by suicide in this last year. And we know that that pain is not limited to Downingtown, Lord, that uh, this year has taken a toll on our young people. And so in every community, Lord, I pray that where there are people, especially young people, who are contemplating uh, the thought that maybe ending it would be better than continuing. We pray that you would give them hope to see that it won't always be this way and that our world is better with them in it. Lord, we pray that you would keep calling us to these mountains. Keep showing yourself to us on them and keep carrying us through each one. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.